This podcast series contains discussion of historical violence, racism, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. On the last day of Willie Leapart's life, he woke up in a cell in the Lexington County Jail. It was the same cell he had woken up in for three months, ever since he was arrested and charged with breaking into a South Carolina home and attacking an 18-year-old white woman. Willie, 16, had been convicted of raping Rosa Cannon in what was seen as one of the most heinous and deadly crimes a black man could face in the Jim Crow South. He was being held in the jail pending his execution. But on the morning of May 5th, 1890, Willie Leapart might have awoken with a sense of hope. His case was on an appeal to the governor. Evidence that gave Willie a solid alibi and letters that cast doubt on the legitimacy of Rosa Cannon's accusation had reached the desk of South Carolina Governor John Richardson. His scheduled April execution date had already come and gone. His attorney, George Graham, was even talking about having Willie moved out of Lexington to the state capital of Columbia, a dozen miles away, in expectation that Willie would be granted a new trial. It was a stunning turn of events for a black man facing such an accusation in the South at the time. But in the end, it wasn't a turn that would be completed. Because Willie would not get a new trial, he would not be freed on appeal. By the end of that day, in early May, Willie Leapart would be dead from a violent lynching. I'm Bristow Marchant, a reporter for the state newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina. And this is The Wrong Walk Home, The Lynching of Willie Leapart, a podcast from McClatchy and the state about the improbable turns in the case of an historic injustice. We followed those twists and turns in the first four episodes of this series. Now, they reach a climax. Willie is on the verge of a major breakthrough that could see him go free. And there are important people in Lexington, South Carolina, who will do everything they can to ensure that never happens. Willie Leapart's story is one with enough drama, intrigue, and reveals for a podcast series, but it's also a tragedy. A young man who hadn't even started his life had it ripped away by a criminal justice system that needed a scapegoat. Someone had to die for Rosa Cannon's honor, and Willie was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He died for a charge that may itself have been a convenient cover story. And the real tragedy is Willie's death wasn't even that unusual. The Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit civil rights group, collected information on all known lynchings in the United States to create the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. The memorial opened in 2018 to recognize and honor the estimated 4,000 victims of lynching between 1877 and 1950. During this period, which historians have labeled the nadir of American race relations, Violence was a common tool to police African-American civil and political rights and maintain a white-dominated government and society, especially in states like South Carolina, 
where at the time a majority of the population was black. When historian Michael Burgess went to research Willie's case using the Equal Justice Initiative's records, he didn't just stop with Willie. He found nine other lynchings in Lexington County. But unfortunately, we can't fully review those other cases, because other than the fact that lynching happened, history hasn't handed down any other details about those people, their lives, or what led to their brutal deaths. His is the only one where we definitively know where it happened, when it happened. We know some of the participants in the lynching. The lynching itself took place within the Lexington County Jail of the time, which is at a major intersection in the town of Lexington. The other nine, you don't know where they happened. You know very little about the assailants. And in some cases, you know nothing about the assailants other than a brief mention in the local newspaper that so-and-so was was lynched. But with Willie Lee Park, because there was a an arrest for a crime he allegedly committed, there was a trial, there would then be an effort for him to receive a second trial based on new evidence. And because the, the lynching took place in the middle of downtown Lexington, we have an enormous both anecdotal and archival a record of everything that happens in the spring of 1890. So when you think about those elements, it makes for a really unique and unusual story that flies against the typical lynching that occurs hundreds, if not thousands of times across the South during this time period. But for a while in the spring of 1890, it looked like Willie might actually be able to avoid the fate of what was essentially a legalized lynching Local attorney George Graham had secured witnesses for Willie's appeal who could give him an alibi for the time the alleged attack occurred. Several people say they saw Willie a mile away that night at a church service. He wasn't alone long enough to make the trip to the Corley House in Lexington and back to the church in time while traveling on foot. Graham also got U.S. Marshal W.J. Miller to gather information from Rosa's family who did not seem very supportive of her during Willie's trial. Miller got an affidavit from Rosa's older brother, Charlie, claiming Rosa told him she wasn't raped. And Miller even obtained a letter Rosa wrote to her mother, in which she says she wasn't sure if Willie was the man who attacked her. That was enough to get Willie a reprieve. His execution was postponed. It looked like the legal process in 19th century South Carolina might actually work in Willie's favor. And that was when powerful actors in the Lexington community decided they couldn't let that happen. In our last episode, we introduced Lexington businessman F.C. Kaufman, who lived near the Corley home where Rosa was allegedly attacked. He also was one of the first people to arrive at the house that night back in January, after Rosa's younger brother Owen ran for help. Kaufman was one of the prosecution's key witnesses at Willie's February trial, where Willie was sentenced to death. Kaufman must have felt a personal stake in Willie's trial, having a particular outcome. Kaufman was also a local political operative for Benjamin Tillman, who was campaigning for governor at the time. 1890 was an election year in South Carolina, and Tillman was leading a populist challenge against the establishment Democrats who controlled the state government. Part of that campaign was whipping up white voters' prejudice against South Carolina's black population, which had only been freed from slavery and given political and civil rights 25 years earlier. 
while figures like Governor Richardson at least wanted to uphold the letter of the law established after the Civil War, Tillman represented those who wanted to roll back the gains made by black people, including a tacit endorsement of whites taking the law into their own hands when it came to blacks accused of breaking Jim Crow rules about how white and black people should interact. In that framework, Willie was a prime target for a lynching, whatever the courts or the governor had to say. And that's exactly what Kaufman went about organizing. We talked before about how Lexington County Sheriff George Drafts went about protecting Willie from a lynching while he was being held in the county jail. Here's how a South Carolina newspaper described the preparations ahead of Willie's trial. Sheriff Drafts, as soon as he heard of the threats and preparation for lynching, surrounded himself with a dozen of the bravest men of the county, and they, with himself, every night since Monday, have been locked up inside the jail, and the keys of the premises were taken over to Solicitor Nelson at the hotel, who retained them in his possession until the morning. After the trial, that kind of precaution seems to have been scaled back. On the night of May 5th, there were maybe six people in the jail that night, including Sheriff Drafts, who with his wife and two children were staying in a small living area near the jail entrance. Draft was sleeping downstairs near the door while the children slept upstairs. That was until about 2 a.m. when a commotion awoke the sheriff with a start. Here's how Drafts described it in a deposition he gave after that night's events. My wife said they had knocked at the door once before I heard it. She had waked me up, said somebody was out there. I heard the knock again, and someone opened the door. I raised up. Someone said, knock it open. Before I got out of bed and got my pants on, the door was knocked open. Suddenly, the sheriff was confronted by an estimated 25 to 30 men, some of them wearing masks, who forced their way inside the jail. Several of them were armed with guns. The room was full. They demanded the keys. I told them I could not give them up. A party gathered me and took me in the passage. They said they were going to have them. My wife and daughter commenced to holler, got real excited, and said, don't hurt him. They said they were not going to hurt Mr. Draft. Some two or three shots were fired in the room. I talked and reasoned with them for 15 or 20 minutes. They said they were going to have them. My wife and daughter said, give them to them. The armed intruders eventually forced their way into the cell block where Willie was being held. As soon as he opened it, I said, Gentlemen, if you are through with me, let me out. And I walked back in my room. And there, Lexington Sheriff sat in a darkened room while he listened to a torrent of gunshots break out in the cell block. He told investigators he heard an estimated 75 to 100 shots fired that night inside his jail. There was at least one other person in the jail cell that night. A white man, Charles Gates, is also sitting in the cell with Willie. Although it's unclear if he's a fellow prisoner or a guard. If it was the latter, Gates was no help in staving off the mob. This is Michael again. Well, we think that's his name because he also goes by another alias of Foster. And he's also referred to in some articles as a this bogus detective. We don't know who he is. But we do know on the, on the night of May 4th, he is a white man in the same cell with Willie. And at 2 a.m., Willie wakes him up and says, Charlie, they're after me, because he can hear the mob. 
In fact, the mob is loud. They are not being secretive about this. Dr. Leapart, who lives a mile away, said he could hear the mob from his house. And so as this mob figures out the lock, and it takes them some time to figure out how, how to, to get in, they get in and they try to bring Willie out of the cell. But Willie has grabbed Charlie Gates, if that is his name, and are using this as a human shield. Gates says, for God's sakes, let me out of here unless you want to kill two men. And eventually, Gates is able to break loose of Lee Part and dive into a neighboring cell. At that point, there are 30 or 40 people in the cell block, armed with rifles and shotguns and whatnot. But they want to take Lee Part out of the cell, out of the jail, drag him across town to modern-day Hendricks Street, and lynch him in the front yard of George Graham. Graham is not going to be home that as the rumors begin to perpetuate in the afternoon of the previous day, May 4th, that a mob was gathering, he and W.J. Miller jump a train to go to Columbia to try to get help. Um, but that is their goal. But instead of Willie going willingly to his death, a total melee ensues as the lynch mob attempts to enter Willie's small cell. Here's how the lynching was described at the time by the Greenville News. The mob forced themselves in the cell corridor and poured volley after volley in the cell with little effect, Leapheart keeping in a corner at the entrance. Three lamps were brought and he shivered them to pieces with a stick. Five men successively attempted to enter the cell and were cracked over their heads. After several hundred shots had been fired, a bullet struck Leapheart in the head, hurling him to the floor. He was then dragged out and 16 balls from a Winchester were fired into him. The intention was to hang him in Graham's yard, but the mob had to kill him just to get him out of the cell. Willie Leapart's going to make that impossible. Every time they try to breach the cell to grab Willie, he hit them with sticks, he broke their lamps, he clocked a couple on the head. I mean, as a 16-year-old boy, he's fighting for his life. At that point, they give up on getting him out of the cell, and according to Charlie Gates, they fire 200 shots into the cell, thus leading to the condition of the body that Dr. Leapart found afterwards where he was shot. Dr. Ellie Leapart, no relation to Willie, was the Lexington County coroner who examined Willie's body after he was killed. He was a white man, and although no relation to Willie, it was not uncommon then, or even today, to find white and black families with the same last name living side by side. It's just another legacy of slavery. Dr. Leapart reported what he saw in another deposition. I found him lying in the Lexington County Jail, flat his back, dead. I found a great many pistol wounds on him, one ball an inch and a half below, a little to the left of the left nipple, another about an inch above, a little behind the left nipple, and his head shot all to pieces. Skull was bursted all up. Other wounds were about his legs. He was shot pretty well near all over. And at that point, they leave the body, they leave the cell block. But the next morning, as daylight breaks, F.C. Kaufman is seen around Main Street, Lexington, in a bloody shirt, bragging about having shot Willie Leapart. I mean, he's proud of it, uh, as well as some of the other mob leaders. And from there, before the governor can send out the attorney general of South Carolina to examine the body, they quickly put him in a casket 
and maybe just rolled him up in a blanket and took him out to the African-American potter's field and throw him in an unmarked grave. Willie Leapart was only a child when he died, a teenager who spent the last three months of his life in a jail cell. Because of a crime, it was virtually impossible he could have committed. We know almost nothing about his life outside of what's on the public record in this case. And whatever else that tells us, it also records that Willie died as a convicted rapist. It also tells us that those responsible for his violent death would never face any real consequences for killing him. Willie wasn't hanged, which is what most people imagine when they hear the word lynching, but that's not what the word means. A lynching is what happens when anyone is publicly killed by a mob, outside the law and without due process. And Willie's killing definitely qualifies. Given all the attention that had been paid to Willie's trial, the news about the lynching quickly became big news in the newspapers of the time, and it was helped by the fact that members of the lynch mob didn't really try to hide their involvement with Willie's death. The lynching party numbered about 100. Some were from the country and some from town. Its members make no effort to conceal their identity and openly acknowledge and discuss the matter on the streets. The matter is very coolly discussed here. The situation is marked by a total absence of excitement. The lynchers seem perfectly willing to take the consequences of their act. And as for Charlie Gates, the mysterious man who was in the cell with Willie that night, we don't really know what happened to him. A reporter will later identify him as a federal port official out of Charleston. It seems that he was placed in there as some added protection for Leapart. He's not a local. He's not recognized by anybody, and it's only because a reporter from out of state had recognized him from entering the port of Charleston does he, is he is the name given Foster. So, and then he disappears. We have no idea what happens to Charlie Gates slash bogus detective Foster. But certainly there was some effort to protect him. But when that time came, self-preservation for Gates, Foster one out over do, doing the, the job he was called to do. Jennifer Dixon McKnight, a professor of African-American history at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, has taught about the prevalence of lynching during this time period in the American South. As shocking and flagrant as Willie Leapart's murder was, it actually wasn't that unusual at this point in history. In some cases where these folks in Lexington broke into the jail, it wouldn't be uncommon in other places for the jailer just to open the door and let the people in. And it wouldn't be uncommon for, you know, for lynchers to get a hold to the person before they ever even make it to the jail. She cites some other examples of just how dangerous the South at this point could be for Black men facing accusations of wrongdoing. I will point to two specific pieces. One, um, the story of Claude Neal. It was a lynching down in Florida, Mariana, Florida. One of the things that's interesting about lynching and that gives me as a scholar pause whenever I study lynching, um, particularly specific cases like Claude Neal's, like this gentleman in Lexington, South Carolina, it's the, the, the fact that lynching becomes a spectacle and it's incredibly public. 
which also speaks to the level of lawlessness. But in so many other Southern cities, um, whenever Claude Neal was, and they moved him, that he murdered a woman or was allegedly murdered a woman in Florida, they took him to jail and I think they moved him at least twice, but he ended up in jail somewhere in Alabama because every time they took him to a jail, a lynch mob formed, right? So the lynch mob got him from the, j- the jail in Alabama and brought him back to Florida. But what's interesting about Claude Neal's case or his experience is that I believe it was 15 different local newspapers reported on that lynching, on the progress of the lynch mob, right? Because and, they're just moving around, like kind of almost following him from jail to jail. Exactly. And they're they're reporting on their journey getting him and getting him back to Florida. They also announce his lynching in local newspapers. He is lynched out in the woods right outside of Mariana, Florida. But once he's dead, they hang his body at the courthouse square in Mariana, Florida. Involvement of people as prominent in the community as F.C. Kaufman was also not unusual. In many cases, lynch mobs could be organized and led by local leaders and otherwise respectable people in town. You're talking about, and, and a part of this lynch mob are local law enforcement. And so there's a lawlessness that goes along with it. So for a lot of lynchings and people who perpetrated the lynchings, there is a sort of above the law sense of themselves in those moments because most of them weren't indicted. Most of them weren't charged. Most of them didn't have to go to trial. And you have a number of those instances where the people who were involved were actually local officials and local law enforcement. So if local law enforcement is perpetrating, then who's supposed to protect and serve? And so I think that lynching itself defies our very understanding of the nation's legal system. Seth Stoughton, a law professor at the University of South Carolina, studies how race intersects with law enforcement. He says lynch mobs are not always a rampaging, out-of-control, wild group of people overcome with emotion that many envision. Instead, lynching was often a much more calculated act. And when we say mob, you know, it's worth pointing out that without kind of really direct historical evidence, it's difficult to identify what we mean by mob. But sometimes in our heads, we have this idea of like people with with torches and pitchforks, right? Like an out of control Frankenstein monster hunting mob. Often that wasn't the case. So there's one case out of Maryland in the same era where a mob went to a jail and they forced uh, the release of that person to the lynch mob and they were going to string that the, the lynching victim up on a tree and a doctor came out and said, hey, look, guys, my wife is really sick right now in the house back there. And I'm worried that if you do this here, it's going to upset her. Would you mind relocating? And they did, which is not the way that you think that story is going to go, right? Like, oh, hey, he'll talk them down. No, he's just like, hey, would you go to a different tree so that my wife doesn't have to look at this? That doesn't suggest it's like an out-of-control, blood-hungry mob. That suggests that it's a mob that is, at least in part, amenable to certain types of discussion about what they're doing. Lynching was such a normal activity in some communities that people not only didn't try to hide their involvement with lynch mobs, 
but they actively promoted their involvement in photographs that they would share widely with their friends and family. And this is like one of the first times we see lynching postcards, right? And this is how sanctioned, how how prevalent and how legally sanctioned lynching is, right? And how acceptable, how normalized it is. So we have people who have developed lynching postcards and they are mailing them to family members, pictures of people hanging from bridges and hanging from trees and burnt bodies and, you know, people gathering around dead bodies, lynch bodies and taking pictures. In a lot of ways, America is a different country now than it was then. But in some ways, it isn't. In 2020, protests broke out around the world after four Minneapolis police officers killed George Floyd during an arrest. What's his name? George Floyd! What's his name? George Floyd! What's his name? George Floyd! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! He can't breathe! The police were called because Floyd was suspected of using a counterfeit $20 bill in a grocery store. He was handcuffed, forced to the ground, and then police officer Derek Chauvin kneeled on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, even as bystanders filmed the whole thing. All four officers were convicted in Floyd's death. Chauvin received the most severe sentence of more than 22 years in prison. There have been references to what happened with George Floyd as a lynching, a public lynching, right, in in 2020, on the streets, carried out by local law enforcement, which the reality is that's not uncommon for our country. We've had public lynchings carried out by local law enforcement. That's a part of the African-American experience. It is not a stretch to connect what happened to Claude Neal in, I believe it was 1930s, early 30s in Florida, to what happened to George Floyd in, in 2020. And that's unfortunate, but that's very much a part of our reality. You know, one of the things that I often say is, you know, a lot of the conversations that came up around the George Floyd incident or, or the, his murder that came up around Breonna Taylor, around Tamir Rice, the, and the list goes on and on and on, right? The reality is, is that the Black community does not have and has not historically had a healthy relationship with law enforcement. I don't care how you twist it. I don't care how you turn it. I don't care how you fix it. That's just the reality, right? And a large part of that comes from that legacy of lynching. We're still going to be victorious no matter what. You can keep on shooting us. We're still going to keep on fighting. It don't matter. We are doing this for our, for our youth. For our babies, for our baby boys, our baby girls. We out here, you know, chanting for Black, for black Lives Matter because our lives matter. But despite that history, an effort would actually be made to hold Willie Leapart's killers accountable. Sheriff Draft said he could not identify any of the men who broke into the jail. It was dark and many of them were wearing masks. But the sheriff later told investigators that he did recognize the sound of one voice under the mask. F.C. Kaufman. The next day, Draft said he even heard Kaufman proudly proclaim his part in the crime, even with the sheriff himself present. I heard Mr. Kaufman say he was in there and that he was responsible for it and that he had lynched the man. And Kaufman wasn't the only one. Another local man, Pierce Taylor, also said he was present for the lynching in front of Sheriff Draft's. 
The sheriff told investigators Taylor was outside the jail the next day when drafts brought in the jury for the coroner's inquest. Taylor casually said, I was in there last night. One reason Drafts was able to so confidently identify Kaufman's voice in the jail was because in this small town, the two men knew each other quite well. Both had long attended St. Stephen's Lutheran Church together, and even today the two men lie near each other in the church cemetery in the middle of downtown Lexington. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, certainly that's going to play a huge part that Sheriff Drafts and his wife went to church with F.C. Kaufman when it comes time to, to answer the question, could you identify any of the members of the lynch mob? And visibly, no, because it's dark in the jail and they have masks, but they both recognize Kaufman's voice. Now, the next day, Kaufman doesn't help his situation any when he goes out on the street of Lexington and essentially boasts and brags and, you know, pats himself on the back, complete with bloody shirt, that, that he killed Willie Leapart. But at the coroner's inquest, what was admissible in court is the statement of the Drafts family to say, yeah, we heard his voice. Because of this, and probably because of the political atmosphere at the time, and the publicity around the case, something unusual for a South Carolina lynching would happen. Kaufman and Taylor would both end up being indicted for Willie's murder. They would be put into the jail that they were accused of breaking into and later go on trial in the same courthouse where Willie was convicted earlier that same year. It's an odd, full-circle moment for Kaufman, the man who somehow was at the center of this story from the beginning. It's important to note, you know, how, when we step off from here, how close F.C. Kaufman is to the Corley home, and that Kaufman is one of the first people that's going to encounter young Owen Corley, who leaves the home looking to go get help. Uh, Kaufman is going to end up being a witness at, at the trial itself. Kaufman is very involved in this in more ways than you would think he would be. Certainly when he commits lynching, he, does, he, he has to feel confident that no court is going to convict him. But certainly the night of January 26, 1890 sets in motion a, a completely different trajectory of life for F.C. Kaufman. Why do you think Kaufman is so central to this story from beginning to end? He, he's, he's there the night it happens, and then he just kind of makes himself a, a bit of a central character in this story. You know, again, I think he is living out the rhetoric of the Tillman campaign, where and it, it, it's not as easy to say, oh, well, Tillman advocated lynching. Tillman was opposed to mobs and lynchings, except, except, when the honor of a white woman was involved. That when you see Tillman say things such as after Booker T. Washington visited Theodore Roosevelt in the White House, the first African-American to dine with a president in the White House, and that, that essentially, and I'll paraphrase to keep the language clean, that 10,000 African-Americans will have to be lynched in the South till they know their place. Here again, it wasn't because, just because of dinner with the president, but because Roosevelt's daughter sat at that dinner as well. And so, it, so I think Kaufman, who has a reputation as a great orator, uh, is giving, is, is embodying the rhetoric, the defense of Southern white womanhood. And, and the argument by the Tillman movement 
uh, you know, not you take the farmer stuff out, is that these conservative elites, the, the Hampton crowd, have appeased and accommodated African-Americans and have created a situation where our Southern white women are in danger uh, because of, of this conservative elite's laxness in defending Southern white womanhood. The state of South Carolina failed to do justice by Willie Leapart in life. It couldn't give him a fair trial, it couldn't give his case a complete review, and it couldn't protect him from being lynched. In the trial of F.C. Kaufman and Pierce Taylor, the state had a chance to deliver justice for Willie after his death. But if you've listened this far, you can probably guess how that's going to turn out. Next time on The Wrong Walk Home. The lynchers seem perfectly willing to take the consequences of their act. That's actually remarkable just in and of itself. But I think it's fascinating in, in another one of those questions we might never get answered. It's just more fuel for conspiracy theories. But I do want to make sure that those other values don't lead us into a trap of patting ourselves on the back. Because we know it was swept under, under the rug, rug. Yes. and it's not under there by itself. Mm -hmm. But it's just, we got to pull it out in order to talk about it. I'm Bristow Marchant. The Wrong Walk Home is a product of the state newspaper. It's produced by Lume Alasali, Jennifer Molina, Frizanthi Pickett, Kata Stevens, and Joshua Boucher. Special thanks to Don Blunt. For lots more on this story, visit thestate.com slash Leapart. If you have more details on Willie Leapart's life, death, or descendants, email me at bmarchant at thestate.com. 